The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Um, We're going to talk this morning about believers and suffering. Subject that probably everybody's a little bit familiar with, I would think. You know, when believers go through tough times, it seems common for them to wonder, why? Why me? Why is life so painful at times? If God loves me, why does He let me suffer like this? So this morning, I want us to look and try to develop a biblical understanding of pain and suffering in the lives of believers. As Christians, we are blessed. No doubt about that. And because of faith in Christ, we know that our sins have been forgiven, and our trust in the death of Yeshua for our sins has given us assurance that when this life is over, we're going to heaven. But have you noticed that you're not blessed with having never to go through pain and difficulties just like unbelievers do? I mean, Christians still have bad marriages. Have you ever had financial difficulties? As Christians, we do that. It's amazing. (laughs) Christians still lose their jobs. They still go through physical suffering. Christians get sick and have accidents just like unbelievers do. Become a Christian doesn't mean that you're never going to lose your job. It doesn't mean that you're going to be immune to cancer or tornadoes or financial failure. Why is it important to understand this? Isn't it obvious that everyone suffers with the pains of life? It should be. But we saw in our Scripture reading this morning that Paul suffered continually. My opinion is, I don't think there was a greater Christian that ever lived than the Apostle Paul. And we just read this morning about his being beaten with whips, beaten with rods. Just the difficult, you know, I think you would have had a hard time selling Paul on the health wealth gospel. I just don't think he'd have bought into it. He'd have said, well, I must have done something wrong, obviously. Okay? And we need to understand this truth. That the pains of life are inevitable even for believers. Because there are people who would have us believe that there's something wrong with you if you're a Christian and you're experiencing pain. There are others who suggest that once you attain a certain level of maturity, pain and suffering will all disappear. They claim that poor health, poverty, and every other pain of life occurs because you don't have enough faith. And that God will continue to bring trials in your life until you straighten up your act and grow up spiritually. The fact is, everybody experiences pain. It doesn't matter who you are. 200 years ago, Thomas Jefferson wrote this, The art of life is the avoiding of pain. Now, when you first hear that statement, it appears to be true. Yeah, we, we do try to avoid pain, do None of us deliberately looks for pain. You know, let's see how miserable I can make my life today. 
We do our best to avoid it, but pain is an important part of life. It's an important part of development. In our experiences, there are many times we've chosen not to avoid pain. For example, childbirth. It's a pretty pleasant experience, isn't it? (laughs) I don't know. It seemed okay to me. I was there with them, and it wasn't that big a deal for me. But (laughs) All right, ladies, I'm I'm backing down. Okay, yes. Even with the advances we have in modern medicine, it's still, there's still a certain amount in childbirth. My sister-in-law just had a baby last week, and she's been going through all, she had to do emergency C-section, and they, you know, messed her stomach up, and just all kinds of problems. Every woman knows that childbirth will be painful, and yet they still have babies. That's why women have babies, because if men had babies, they would have only one. We're, we're smarter than that. We're not going through that again, okay? We know that, all right? Well, think of the pain and the sorrow that a mother and a father experience as they seek to raise those kids. Someone has said when they're little, they step on your feet. When they're older, they step on your heart. I understand that. I've met many dedicated Christian parents whose hearts have been broken because of a wayward child. I am one of them. I know the pain of watching your children walk away from the Lord. That just, you know, crushes you. If everybody really lived to avoid pain, nobody would get married, nobody would try to raise a family, nobody would ever have children. You know, some pain and suffering comes because of disobedience. But not all pain is a result of sin. Pain is a, it's a danger signal. And we should be thankful for it if we never felt pain when something was wrong, our bodies would die from neglect. But what good is pain to us spiritually? That's what we want to talk about this morning. This is where we want to focus our attention. And I want to give you four points and a poem. Okay? This is going to be a little different than you're used to, but I want to give you four points. I wasn't going to give you a poem. In my original notes, I had four points and no poem, but I added a poem to the end. Okay? Just so I could do four points and a poem. But... Hopefully this will help us understand that pain is beneficial in our Christian lives. I want all of us to understand four things about pain. It's certain it's going to happen. It's deserved. I'll explain that. It's sovereignly administered and it's beneficial. Let's start with one. Pain in life is certain. Okay? Job was a man acquainted with quite a bit of pain. And Job said this, man who is born of a woman, that'd be every man, right? Is few of days and full of trouble. I can relate to that. I think we all can. Job also said, but man is born to troubles as the sparks fly upward. See, God promises that life is going to have pain. Solomon put it this way, for all his days are full of sorrow. And his work is vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Believers, the Bible does not teach a health, wealth, prosperity gospel. It's just not there. It clearly teaches that pain is a part, a beneficial part of the Christian life. The question is never, will we have pain 
but rather, how will we deal with the pain that life brings? That's the question. How do we deal with it? How do we handle it? So pain is certain in life. Second point, all pain in life is deserved. Now, let me try to explain that in case you're questioning. What do you mean deserved? Why, is, why do we deserve pain? Well, Romans 3.10 says, As is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Verse 23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every human being who has ever lived except Yeshua has sinned and lived an unrighteous life. And because of that, we deserve wrath. Let's go back to the beginning. Set our thinking at a point. God said to Adam and Eve in the very beginning, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day you eat of it you will surely die. In other words, God said, if you sin, if you disobey me, you'll die. Now God said, Take, eat anything in the garden you want. Just one thing stay away from. And you know what man did? He, of course, had to violate God and go after that one thing. You know, God created man to be in fellowship with Him. But man rebelled, he disobeyed God. Now, did Adam die that day? Well, I believe he did because God said, in the day you eat of it. Now, there's controversy about this. There's people who have different opinions. But I believe he died spiritually, and that was demonstrated by him being kicked out of the garden. God put him out of the garden and put an angel there with a sword so you can't, because the garden was where God dwelt. That's his home. And so man is separated from God. God said he would die that day, and he did, but he lived physically for 900 more years. It's very important that we understand this. Satan lied. Adam died. That day he died spiritually. So man's problem is a spiritual problem. He is separated from God because of his sin. He's in a state of spiritual death. He is under the wrath of God. Now, if we approach all of life from the perspective of the standard set of creation, and that is this, sin brings spiritual death, which puts us under the wrath of God. We realize that we deserve nothing but wrath from God. People, this is so important that we set our thinking straight. You come in deserving, thinking you deserve certain things from God, you are always going to be disappointed. You come in, you know, this, this is just in life. If you expect things from people, guess what? You'll be disappointed. You want, to know, you want to know how to not be disappointed? Don't expect anything from anybody. And you'll never be disappointed. But we just have this mentality of deserve. Well, God owes me something. What you owe, what you are owed, what you deserve is pain. And right thinking about God's holiness and our sinfulness will change how you respond to the pain that comes in life. The truth is, we don't deserve one moment of happiness. We deserve wrath. We have sinned. We deserve the wrath of God. You've heard me say over and over how important our thinking is. How we think affects how we live. The Bible has much to say about how we think because our thought process affects our actions. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The heart to the Hebrew is the thinking process. We don't think that way. We think the heart is you know, a feeling, emotion. It's just a pump. Okay, It's a muscle, really. But the Hebrew mind, the heart was how you thought. You are a product of your thinking. That's why it's so important to think right. 
The mind is the command center which determines our conduct based on what influences our thinking. So a believer has to guard his thinking to maintain a biblical viewpoint. We could interpret that this way. Guard your mind above everything else you do because it will determine the life you live. See, if we think a certain way, we act a certain way. I think if I asked you what you thought about the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, I think every one of you would say, it's wrong. But I would dare say, we all have bought into it more than we know. Even subconsciously. Something happens, we're like, that's not right. God, why'd you let this? You know, because we're buying into that idea that, hey, we, well, we deserve certain things. We may think it's wrong as a doctrine. But we like the idea. Can we admit that? I mean, do you ever wish the health wealth gospel was true? That'd be great, wouldn't it? I get to I get saved, I get to go to heaven, and I get to be always healthy, and I get to be wealthy. I'm that's a that's a win-win. Sign me up. I like the idea of a pain-free life. I would even go so far as to say that when we do experience in great pain, we tend to think that God has forsaken us. I've heard Christians say, because they got a flat tire, that, you know, how could God love... And I'm like, what in the world? What is there, you know, you have a car to have a flat tire on. Some people don't have that. So it's just, I think we bought into the teaching of Zig Ziglar. Y'all remember Zig Ziglar? Yeah, he's, he's dead now, but he was a success motivation speaker, widely read and accepted by Christians and pastors, because it was this positive, you know. Zig Ziglar said this, as you accept yourself, you will see yourself as a person who truly deserves the good things in life. I would dare say that most believers believe that. They think they deserve good things in life. They deserve certain things from God. The word deserve means to be worthy of. I think that most church, most of the church believes that they're worthy of God's grace, they're worthy of God's goodness. We think that God owes us. And in this twisted view, God is the debtor and man is the creditor. We often think God owes us health. As a matter of fact, He owes us at least 90 years of a healthy life. He owes us a certain level of wealth. I mean, we deserve to have enough money to meet all our greeds. Greeds, I said. You heard me, okay? Like a really nice home with a lot of rooms we won't ever use. But just we need those rooms there, right? Something to dust and clean. We need a couple cars. We deserve trouble-free children. A loving and a faithful spouse. The list of things we think God owes us goes on and on. Be honest. You feel there's certain things that God owes you? Why? Is it because you're worthy? Do you understand that God is holy and that He's just and He has to punish sin? Even the slightest sin defies the authority of God. It insults His majesty. It challenges His justice. And because of our sin, we all deserve... The wrath of God. Romans 1.18, Paul said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all 
ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath in the Bible is never capricious or self-indulgent or irritable. God's wrath is always judicial. It's the wrath of a judge administering justice. Each person gets exactly what they deserve. Wrath denotes God's resolute action in punishing sin. It's the active manifestation of His hatred to sin. He's holy, and His holiness demands that He not tolerate unholiness, and men, all men, are unholy. So we deserve wrath. Look at Genesis 6.5. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I believe that. You know why I believe that? Because I know me. And I'm like, God, you're writing about me. See, I am in the Bible. (laughs) Believer, we have to adjust our thinking to realize the only thing we really deserve is wrath. That's all God owes us. If we really understood the depth of our sin, and if we really understood the holiness of God, we would thank God every day for every breath we ever breathe. We thank God for His mercy and grace, no matter how much pain we were in, because we'd realize we don't deserve to exist. So pain in this life is certain. Everybody, you know, those people you look at and you think, well, they got a perfect life. They don't. People try to mask it. People try to cover it up. They try to make everyone think their life is perfect. The stuff you see on Facebook, (laughs) their life is wonderful. They're always on vacation. They're always happy. Oh, boy, if they really showed you life. Don't believe Facebook, people. People only put the great happy moments on Facebook, okay? They don't put the, you know, all the moments on there. All right, number three, all pain is sovereignly administered. Without an understanding of God's sovereignty over our pain, we can't understand the meaning of our suffering. See, we need to learn to think biblically. Your stability is related to the attitudes that you have. It's not related to your circumstances. It's related to how you deal with, how you think about your circumstances. Rabbi Kirshner, in his book, Terribly titled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, because there are no good people, okay? Kirshner says this, God wants the righteous to live peaceful, happy lives. But sometimes, even he can't bring that about. I don't know what God this guy's worshiping. It's too difficult for even God to keep cruelty and chaos from claiming their innocent victims. Even he can't bring that about. People, you know, we are shocked by something like that, but that's how most of the world feels. Okay? God's impotent. He has no control over this. Kirshner goes on, and this is why they have to feel this way. He goes on to say this. If God is both powerful and good, why is there so much suffering, so much pain, so much heartache in the world? God is either good and not powerful, or He is powerful And not good. You cannot have it both ways. Oh, yeah, you can. All you have to do is have the biblical God as your God, not one you make up. And it seems the majority of the church has bought into this lie. I think in an attempt to shield God from accusations that He's not loving, we make Him impotent in the face of pain. Oh, man, God really feels for you. He wishes He could help you out. Really? 
We think it's better to comfort the afflicted with the idea that God's full of sympathy. He just can't do anything about it. Pain and suffering can often cause believers to question the goodness of God. They really, it really can. Have you ever asked the question, if God loves me, why am I going through this? Nobody likes suffering. Kirshner's argument assumes that a good God necessarily wouldn't want His creation to suffer. I mean, if He's good, He wants what you think is good. Right? This accusation, I think, appeals to us. Wouldn't it be great if God's goodness required that we experience no pain or suffering? We're His children. God's a good God, so everything is, you know, rainbows and lollipops. It's just a wonderful life. But the love and the goodness of God doesn't preclude him from allowing suffering and pain. The difficult question is not, how could God allow us to suffer? That's the question people ask right away. How's, why? Why does he allow this? <clears throat> the real question we should ask is, how could God allow us, who rebel against his authority every day, ever, to experience pleasure? That's a better question. See, it all depends on where your thinking is. The mystery is why God would allow pleasure in the lives of those who disobey Him. God is sovereign. You understand that. At least I think you do. <coughs> but did you understand that His sovereignty extends to our every pain? It's biblically wrong to say that God permits pain. Pain is something that God is actively involved in. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way. God, from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass. Better than that, the Bible puts it this way. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance. Thank you, sir according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. He works everything. Everything in life comes a counsel to what He has planned. He doesn't permit, people. God ordains. When we say that God permits something to happen, we often mean that God in His heart of hearts doesn't really like it. But He really can't do anything about it. That's not biblical. God works all things according to the counsel of His will. The NIV translates this this way. Him who works out everything in conformity with the purposes of His will. People, God does not merely permit pain. He plans pain. All that comes to pass in our lives is according to the eternal plan of the all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving, great God and our Father. The sovereignty of God is absolute, it's irresistible, it's infinite. God does as He pleases, only as He pleases, always as He pleases, and whatever takes place in time is but the outworking of that which He has decreed from eternity. Now, if that's too strong for you, you do not understand the God of the Bible. You just don't understand. I love Psalm 115.3. Our God, Yahweh, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. How could He do whatever He pleases if He's not sovereign? He couldn't. He'd be frustrated all the time. I wish I could do this. I want to save that person. I want to help this person. They're really suffering. But I just... 
If God was merely to permit suffering, He would not be doing what He pleased. Believer, no pain, no suffering of any kind comes on us apart from the sovereign administration of our loving and all-wise Heavenly Father. Now let me say something that may shock you. But it's something that we must set our thinking right on. Suffering is a gift of Yahweh's sovereign grace. That sounds stupid, doesn't it? <laughs> I would say it's stupid, except for the Bible teaches it. Look at what Paul said in Philippians 1.29. It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. In order to enable the Philippian Christians to bear up under persecution, Paul reminded them and us that suffering is much a part of God's eternal purpose for our lives as believing in Christ is. Paul says, it has been granted. That's one word in the Greek. Harizoma, which comes from harris, which means grace. So harizoma is grace. Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words says, harizoma primarily denotes to show favor or kindness. To give freely, bestow graciously. Paul is saying that suffering is a gift of God's grace. Now, we don't often think of trouble, times, persecution as a gift of God's grace. But that's our problem. We don't think biblically. God says it is, so you either believe Him or you call Him a liar. It has been granted. In other words, it's given you as grace to believe on Him. We'd all agree with that. Yes, we come to salvation by the grace of God. It's a gift that He gives us. He gives us the faith to believe. It's a gift. Not only that, okay, but also suffering. So, suffering's a gift of grace, just as belief's a gift of grace. We want the belief. We don't want the suffering. That's what He's doing here. He's comparing suffering With salvation, both are grace gifts. We know salvation is a gift according to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Well, so is suffering according to this verse. He doesn't say suffering is a punishment. It's something that's happened by chance. He says it is graciously, lovingly given to us by our Heavenly Father. It's a gift. What does a gift reveal? It reveals the giver's love for you. Gifts are undeserved, they're not earned, and it, a gift should cause thankfulness, it should cause gratitude, right? I mean, when is the last time you thanked God when you were suffering? We don't thank God for things we don't like, okay? We just don't do it. And I said it over and over, whenever a Christian says, praise the Lord, he means, God, you're doing everything the way I want you to. It's like a thumbs up, keep going, God. We just don't say that unless we're happy with the situation. Well, how can Paul say that suffering is a gift? I mean, I think this should show us how far we've come from the thinking of the believers in the first century. See, God giving suffering as a gracious gift doesn't make sense to us. That we should be grateful for it? That it should make us happy? That it should make us feel honored and blessed? That it's a manifestation of His love? That doesn't make sense to us. But it did to the first century believers. 
They were familiar with suffering. Just like we read in the you know, persecuted church today, these Christians around the world, that, that doesn't surprise them. They're not shocked by it. Well, there's a couple options we have. Maybe we could just ignore this, ignore this verse. I mean, maybe just tear it out of your Bible and say that. Let's, let's cut that one out. Let's forget that one. Um, maybe this is just an isolated instance of a raving lunatic with a martyr complex. Paul got hit in the head a few too many times, maybe, okay? So, you know, while he's just been so beat up, he's... No. This is God's inspired Word. I don't know how the health wealth teachers deal with this verse. It certainly doesn't fit in their, you know, wheelhouse. It, you know, suffering's a grace gift. But we need to understand that Paul isn't the only one who holds this view, Okay? So he might have got hit in the head too many times, but this is not his. Yeshua taught this. The other New Testament writers taught this. Look at Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted. That doesn't sound right. For righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and say, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. What should we do? Tuck your tail between your legs and go home crying. Okay? They picked on me. They called me a Jesus freak. They said mean things to me. Look at Rejoice and be glad. The persecuted are blessed, not cursed. Yeshua says we're to rejoice when we suffer. There's a connection in the New Testament between suffering and joy. That's hard for us to wrap our heads around. That seems like a contradiction. But that's what the Scriptures teach. Notice what the basis of rejoicing is. It's our reward in heaven. When we're persecuted, we rejoice. This is not our home. We're we're pilgrims moving through here to our heavenly home. In Acts chapter 5, it says, when they had called in the apostles, the apostles were doing what God had told them to do. They're preaching the gospel. They're sharing the good news. Well, they got called in and they beat them. And they charged them not to speak in the name of Yeshua, and they let him go. So, set your thinking right. These men are being beaten for doing what God told them to do. Okay, so you think if God told you, we're okay here. God's going to protect us, make sure everything goes right, because we're being obedient. Notice their response. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing. What? Why were they rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name? They didn't cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Yeshua. <laughs> they rejoiced and they kept right on preaching after getting a beaten. Their suffering caused them to rejoice. They didn't get hurt feelings. They didn't get depressed. They didn't get mad at God. God, we're not sharing this gospel anymore. We're going back to fishing. We're leaving this stuff. This is ridiculous. We try to do what you asked us to do, and we're suffering for it. Oh, that would be us that says that. That's right. Look at Peter says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Suffering and rejoicing. How do you get that combination? They're together in the Scripture. Suffering's not a curse, it's a blessing. We need to get that. It's a gift of God's sovereign grace 
It's the very essence of Christian experience. Believers, we live in a hostile world. We live in a world of unbelievers who, in our day, in this country, it is crazy. You're not even allowed to recognize that there's genders. There's something wrong with you if you see genders. I'm like, what is wrong with people today? It's just gone nuts. So if we're standing up for biblical ideals and we say, hey, the Bible says this, the Bible says abortion is a sin. And our politicians are slaughtering. And listen, you idiots that elect these politicians, it's what is wrong with people? People call themselves Christians and they vote for politicians who murder children. You can't crush an eagle's egg in this country without going to jail. But you could kill an unborn baby. Something is terribly, terribly wrong. So pain in life is certain, people. It's deserved. All pain is sovereignly administered. And when I say it's deserved, I don't mean that you're suffering because you've been bad. I mean just, you know, we've all violated God's holiness and His wrath, so whatever we get is deserved in the sense that we don't deserve blessing. We don't deserve grace. All right? And fourthly, pain has a purpose in our lives. God's sovereign. He's all wise. Every pain that we experience has a purpose. God just doesn't does that. Let me see how they let me see how they do with this. No. Well, what is the purpose of pain? Well, there's all kinds of lessons to be learned from pain that the Bible tells us about. Let me look, let's just look at a few of them this morning. Um, see what the Bible has to say. Pain can be caused by our sin. Now, do we realize this? Sometimes we're in pain because we messed up. All right, look at uh, 1 Corinthians. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and he's talking about the Lord's Supper. And at Corinth, Corinth's the most messed up church that you could go to. So, you know, at the Lord's Supper, they're violating everything. And he says, Many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Why? They're sick, they're ill, they're dying because of their sin. Now, let me issue a caution here. Because we love to be judgmental. So someone's suffering, we're like, oh, I wonder what they did. <laughs> no, you don't need to wonder what they did, okay? It's none of your business, first of all. Okay, you need to be praying for them. You need to be encouraging them. But it's not your job to evaluate and see, what did you do wrong? You know, when I was in the hospital paralyzed with Guillain-Barre syndrome, people from my church came in and they brought in a bunch of literature because Kathy at that time loved owls and so we had all kinds of owl stuffed owls and stuff and they said this was why I was paralyzed okay and I said get them owls out of the house no I didn't I just I, I didn't buy into it but you know to them see it's wrong it's wrong people from the outside to look in and say this is why God's doing this that, it was a judgment from God on my sin but they had no clue what the sin was. The sin was, I knew God had called me to preach, and I was like, I'll do, get around to that, Lord. No, He said, right now, get busy studying. I was doing other things. So He got my attention. I'm laying there in the hospital bed, paralyzed from the neck down. I said, okay, Lord, <laughs> I'll do it your way, because I don't have a choice here, you know. <laughs> How do you fight something like that, you know? Yeah, I did have free will. I could have chose to ignore Him and never walk again, I guess, but, you know... <clears throat> 
So, in a, essentially, all suffering is a result of sin, because if Adam wouldn't have sinned, we wouldn't suffer, but not all suffering is a result of personal sin. Sometimes it is. And I think it's good to examine yourself. You're going through something in life, say, Lord, how am I doing with you? Alright? So it can be caused by our sin. Pain helps us to mature in our practical Christian lives. It just plain helps us grow up. God uses pain as a training tool. God lovingly and faithfully uses pain to develop personal righteousness, maturity, and help our walk with Him. Look at Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, or be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastens every son whom He receives. Okay? God chastens His children. It's the Greek word pazevo, and it means tutelage, education, training, by implication, disciplinary correction, punishment. God uses suffering and pain in our lives to help us grow, to help us mature as believers. All right, number three, pain weans us from self-reliance. I like this one. This one really speaks to me. I understand this. You know, it weans us from self-reliance. Do we have a tendency to be self-reliant? We really do. And look at life. Okay, look at your life. When everything is going just how you like it, does your prayer life suffer any? Does your fellowship with God suffer any? It's like, wow, things are so beautiful. But as soon as trouble comes, oh, well, God, that's right. You, you pull out the life preserver of prayer, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, I need to pray. Look what Paul said, 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. We don't want you to be unaware. We don't want you ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired even of life itself. We thought we were going to die. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Can you relate to that? I really can. Many men and women have testified that God taught them this lesson that they're dependent upon Him by taking away the things that they depend on. As I lay there in that hospital bed, paralyzed from the neck down, I was like, okay, God, I'll do whatever. I realize, you know, I can't go my own way. I can't do my own thing. And much of the pain we experience is to bring about a continued dependence on the grace and the power of God. Pain is designed to cause us to walk by God's ability, power, and provision rather than by our own. It causes us to turn from our resources to His resources. You know, when you've done everything you can, your resources run out. It's like, okay. God. And I saw this early in my Christian life. When I met a man whose life I think was, I just, looking at his life, you'd think things couldn't be worse possibly for this individual. And this man was the most joyful, excited, exuberant Christian I think I'd ever met. And I'm scratching my head thinking, what am I missing here? This guy is so in love with the Lord, and yet he's got a situation no one would want to deal with. I don't care what your situation is, it, can't, it doesn't have to affect your fellowship with the Lord. We need to learn, and that's what God, He wants us to be near Him. And He does things to draw us near Him, and sometimes that's what it takes is pain and suffering. So it weans us from self-reliance. Number four, our pain can be an evangelistic tool. 
Now, this can be evangelistic or can be chasing people away from even thinking about God because they watch you and they're like, eh, that's, they think they're a Christian and that's how they deal with life? No, you know, they're not interested in that. Look at Philippians 1, 12-14. Paul is imprisoned and he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Okay? So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul's imprisonment, he says, it served to advance the gospel. I'm in jail, but guess what? I'm preaching here. And the prison guards are listening to what I'm saying. And these people from the prison guards, Rome's imperial guard, are trusting Christ. I think when believers handle suffering joyfully with stability, it becomes a powerful testimony to the grace of God. When people look at your life and everything's going you know, the way life's supposed to go, they're like, yeah, big deal. They love the Lord, but yeah, everything's going their way. When your life is falling apart, when you're walking through hell and you have a testimony to glorify God, people look at your life and go, I want what they got. I want that. I want something that carries me through the most difficult times in life and with joy and confidence. That's a powerful testimony to the grace of God. Fifthly, our pain helps us to develop our capacity and sympathy in comforting others. You ever experienced that? I've experienced that in my life too. Because I've gone through trials and then later somebody else goes through trials. Let me tell you, I can pray for them. Why? Because I've been there. I feel what they're feeling. I know what they're going through. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Yeshua the Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. God does comfort us. If we allow Him, He comforts us. And why does He do that? Now watch the rest. So that, in our purpose clause, we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. God comforts us. Guess what? We pass it on. We share comfort with other people. With the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in God's in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we shall share abundantly in comfort too. You know, often God sends suffering to give us an opportunity to minister to other people. In the midst of pain of others, we see an opportunity to minister, especially if we've been there. He uses that pain so we can be an encouragement to other people who are going through life's problems. And you can approach them and say, look at I do know what you're going through. A lot of times we say that and we don't really have a clue what they're going through. Because if you haven't been through it, you really don't have a clue. But if you've been through it, you know, then you have a clue. I remember a young couple, they had a child and the child was going through a lot of physical problems. And and I was on my face before God for that child because when my second daughter was born, she was in the ICU for days because, you know, her circulation was cut off. She was purple. And so I, I knew the pain. I felt the pain so I could pray for them. I could try to comfort them. I went through the same thing you're going through. And you can tell them, look, I got through it. Guess what? God got me through it. He'll get you through it. We can be an encouragement to each other. Sixthly, pain and affliction reveal spiritual needs. They reveal spiritual needs. Psalm 119.67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. And now... I keep your words. David was enjoying considerable material prosperity. His life was full of satisfying, satisfying things, you know, but he had a bunch of things, but he didn't realize his own spiritual need. 
But his affliction revealed the spiritual need. Remember, not all pain and suffering is intended as a warning against spiritual decline. But there are times when that's the case. And we see this in the life of Paul. And 2 Corinthians 12, 7 says, So to keep me from becoming conceited. <laughs> Paul said, you know, the Lord showed me a lot of visions. I was caught up to the third heaven. Saw a lot of things, a lot of interesting stuff, but I could have got the big head. But to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me to be, from becoming conceited. So he saw the thorn in the flesh as an instrument of God to maintain a spirit of humility and dependence on the Lord. You know, we all have our own thorns in the flesh whether they be physical, emotional, psychological, financial, God gives us each a measure of pain to keep us humble, to keep us trusting Him rather than ourselves. There are many reasons the Bible tells us that God gives suffering. But the supreme reason is the ultimate reason for everything He does. And that's number seven. Got to have perfect seven. We go through pain to bring glory to God. It's all to bring glory to God. Yeshua taught His disciples this in John 9. As He passed by, He saw a blind man from birth. And the disciples asked Him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents. See, they're judging. Somebody's have a problem. Somebody sinned. Okay? They're doing just what I told you a minute ago. Don't do that. Okay? Now, either they hadn't studied Job or they didn't learn much from it. The false assumption was somebody sinned and this guy's suffering for it. All right? Well, the Lord tells him, Yeshua answered, it was not this man's sin or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Yeshua tells him the man was blind not because either of his parents, but because God, that God would be glorified in this man's life. And here's where we find comfort in our pain. This isn't an isolated case wherein man's pain served to bring glory to God. All pain is designed to glorify God. We're in the midst of pain and suffering. We need to remember the ultimate sense all is right with the world. Things are operating as they should. Not one thing happens in our lives that God had not planned to happen. Now, when we're in the midst of a severe trial, it can be difficult to celebrate God's glory. I mean, when we're hurting, we tend to be rather consumed with ourselves, and we find it difficult with much sincerity to say, God, I'm sure glad you brought all this pain in my life so I can bring glory to you. So let me give you another reason to celebrate our pain. We have a guarantee from the Lord that everything's happened in our life works together for good. Romans 8.28, we know for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. Now this is a promise that nothing bad will ever happen to us. Right? Because if everything works together for good, then it can't be bad. You might think it's bad, but it's really not bad. And that's the problem. Nothing bad will ever happen. You will think it's bad, but it's not bad because it's going to work for good. All these words of Paul, they're so familiar to us that they often lose their power. This verse should always give us hope and comfort. We aggravate our pain when we don't take the promises to heart. Or worse, we call God a liar. Did your car break down when you could least afford repairs? Did you lose your job? Did a loved one come down with a terminal disease? Your spouse walked out on you? The God who created and controls the world also controls the 
your car, your boss, your spouse, your every virus, every germ, every disease. If we're going to make sense of pain, we need to understand that God is in control of everything that happens in our lives. And let's remember that Romans 8.28 didn't just drop out of the sky, didn't come in a fortune cookie, all right? It's studied in light of its context. Romans 8.18-30 as a unit deals with the subject of comfort and suffering. We may have no idea how our pain could ever be seen as good. And we may never on this earth see how God is glorified by it. But our ability to understand all of reality is no reason to not believe that God, the truth that He has revealed about it. We don't understand it, but He's promised that I'll use your pain to bring myself glory, to mature you, to help you to grow. We need to remember the wonderful truth about God in the midst of the storms. He's sovereign. He's working all things together for His good. We don't understand why sometimes. And that's where trust comes in. You know, the song that Gary played this morning, we just have to trust in God. We're going to experience pain. And as you do, remember that pain is certain. Everybody in life goes through pain. It's deserved because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So anything we go through is is. Anything we don't go through is a matter of grace. It's sovereignly administered. We never suffer by chance, by accident. There's always a purpose that goes on in our suffering. And pain has a purpose in our lives. All right, that's four points. Now, I decided to add a poem at the end. So let me share this with you. 200 years ago, Madame Guyon was imprisoned from 1695 to 1703 by the Roman Catholic Church. They imprisoned her for... They said she was a quietist, though she never really claimed herself to be a quietist. See, the R.C. Church considered quietism heretical, so they put her in prison. She spent nine years in a dungeon, far below the surface of the ground, lit only by a candle at mealtimes. Think, nine years, total blackness, mealtimes, I get a little candle. She wrote a poem. I want to read that poem to you. Now, before I read her words, I want you to think with me for a moment. What would you have to say to God if you've been in prison for loving Him, for serving Him? She was a big proponent of grace over works. R.C. Church didn't like that too much, okay? So, if you were put in a dark dungeon for nine years, what would your attitude be towards God? What would you have to say to him? What kind of poem would you write to God? This is what she wrote 200 years ago. A little bird I am, shut from the fields of air, yet in my cage I sit and sing to him who placed me there. She understands the sovereignty of God, people. Him who placed me there. Well pleased a prisoner to be, because my God, it pleases thee. Not have I else to do, I sing the whole day long, and he who most I love to please does listen to my song. He caught and bound my wandering wing, but still he bends to hear me sing. My cage confines me round, abroad I cannot fly, but though my wing is closely bound, my heart's at liberty. My prison walls cannot control the flight, the freedom of the soul." Ah, it is good to soar 
these bolts and bars above, to Him whose purpose I adore, whose providence I love. Wow, that's powerful, people. And in the mighty will to find the joy, the freedom of the mind. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your grace to us. Father, we are, especially as 21st century Americans, we are comfort-oriented. We are used to having everything to make our life easy and comfortable. It's hard to go through suffering. It's hard for us to wrap our head around it. And Lord, I pray that You would help us as Bereans to study this subject out, to understand that suffering is a part of life, that You are in control, that You are training us, You are teaching us, You are keeping us close to You through the suffering. Lord, I pray that we as Your children here in America would grow to the point where we could rejoice in suffering because we know that it only helps our fellowship with You. It would draw us closer to You that we may walk in a close communion with our God. Thank You, Lord, for Your incredible grace to us. Amen. All right. Questions? One of, those, one of those things of what you was preaching on today about Acts 5, 41 to 42, uh, how, you, how we look at things in that way. Uh, I think even, even, even if, you know, like a child would, uh, would do something bad, even though he knew he was going to get a whipping, he still do that, that, that drive for, for that he, that he wants. It's just the opposite of what you would teach. Yeah. Uh, 41 to 42. So that, that brings a lot to my attention. Well, that's us. I mean, man is prone to evil. Like, you know, like Job said, we, we go in that direction, you know, where it's just, that's how we are. We're, and that's why I'm saying we deserve it. We're evil. We're corrupt. We're not, you know, we're not living for God's holiness. All right, Kathleen asks, God sovereignly causes, she has in question mark, all evils in the world. Rape, molestation, sex trade, torture, tornadoes, not only permits, but causes. Well, that's what the Bible teaches, okay? David's son, Absalom, slept with his concubines. And God said, I caused that. He told David, I'm going to raise up evil out of your own house. There are plenty of things in the Bible. Listen, we, you know, that's us. It's like, well, that's, look at the book of Job. All that Job went through. Just read chapter 1. All that Job went through. And what did Job say? Satan gave me this, God gave me this, and Satan took it away. Is that what Job said? God gave me this, and the Sabaeans took it away. No, he said, God gave it, God took it away. All those evils that happened to Job. Listen, God has a purpose in everything that happens in life. If God is not control, in control of every event, then He can't bring things about. Because something else could short-circuit that event, and God's like, oh, scrambling. Now what do I do? i got to go to plan B, plan C, plan D. No, God has only plan A, and He executes plan A. He is in control. And He uses, listen, He uses evil men to carry out His purposes. So yes, you either have a God who's in control of everything, or you have a God who's not God. So there's only two options there. Stan? We'll go to lunch later. Why don't you just wait? Uh, that's my favorite thing. <laughs> anyway, um, you started talking about abortion. And that's you know one of the things that tugs at my heartstrings all the time because it's you know it's, it's a murder of an innocent human being. Uh, here it is.
Christians who vote for abortionists, okay, that allow this, don't they share in their sin? Okay, um, it, it, that's a difficult question. Stan asked that the people who vote for abortionists, don't they share in their sin? You know, people, on the most, for the most part, are ignorant, okay? I mean, you see the people who vote. That AOC is in Congress, okay, to me is a picture of people are not too smart, okay? You know, there's just, it, the situation of our country is just sad altogether. I think, I think the stuff we see happening in the country just could be a judgment because there's blood in the land. And we've spilled so much blood in this land over abortion. All right, over what we say, this is women's right to her body, you know, well, first of all, I didn't even think we believed in genders anymore, so how does a woman have a right to anything, you know, because we got rid of all that. But listen, it is a scourge on this land, it is an abomination. I think our responsibility is to educate people. You all have contact with other people at work, at school, at wherever, you, you know, and you get an opportunity to share with people. People just they buy into what they're told, and if they're not taught different, and we need to teach people this is a life. This is a separate life from conception on that God has created, and it will be a human being if you leave it alone, okay? So they have to be educated that way. I think a lot of people, they don't know, and they don't, another thing a lot of ladies don't understand is after they have abortion, you talk to a lot of ladies who had abortion, the guilt is crippling. It's crippling. Okay, but I wasn't talking about the people who are ignorant, thing, you know, because then they're, they just don't know. I'm talking about the ones who know. Who willingly do that. Well, I think it's, I think it's sad. I really do. Uh, of course, I don't, you know, our government is such a mess. The elections are so, you know, are, are they really, you know, are they real? I, I don't even know that I, I believe that anymore, okay? I, I mean, it's just... That Obama got elected twice was hard for me to, to, to fathom. But we know there's illegals in this country who are voting. Okay, we know that. Here's what blows my mind. This, you know, we're getting off the subject here, but this to me is absolutely mind-blowing. You come in this country illegally, we put you on our welfare system. We put you on, you know, we, we financially help you break the law. I mean, are the inmates running the asylum? Yeah, they are. And again, okay, we're going to take this back. Let's bring it back around spiritually. This is the church's fault. The church is to be the conscience of the nation. And our church today in America is so messed up. It's so man-oriented. It's so prosperity gospel-driven that it doesn't affect. You know, the churches today are saying abortion's not wrong. Homosexuality's not. All these things are not wrong. They're, they're just accepting everything. And so what do we expect the unbelievers to do if the church doesn't even stand for righteousness and holiness anymore? And so the whole country is being dragged down because we are not being the voice anymore. We're not being the voice. And listen, if there's not a God, then there is no evil or good. There's no standard for those things except you make it up. Okay? The only reason we have evil and good is because God said, this is bad, this is good. Alright? That's our standard, God. Without Him... But he's, you know, this country wants to be as far away from God as it can be. And I think the further this country gets away from God, the more we're going to see stuff like abortion is just the tip of the iceberg, you know. Euthanasia is next, and then, you know, then they start, well, we don't like you because of this or that. And, you know, it's, it's 
It's snowballing, people. But again, we as believers, our job is to teach the truth. Arise. That's right. Arise and let people know. You know, we're, we're to speak of the gospel. We're to share the gospel. People in this world needs hope, need hope, and we got to get out there and talk to them about it. Okay? We have something that they critically need, but most of us are too timid to even talk about it. Okay? Yes, I'm a Calvinist. Yes, I believe in evangelism. How about that? <laughs> because listen, the, un, the, the elect have to hear the gospel. And that's why God called us to do it. Okay? Gary? Um, I'm sure I'll frame this question, but going back to all we've discussed and uh, Genesis, on the, sixth, on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. So everything that's happening today was ordained and finished in God's mind in six days. Well, that we could go back further than that in eternity past. You know, the Bible talks about the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So God had a plan of salvation before there ever was a world. You know, so His plan goes way back. All the mess that this country is in was preordained. Well, yeah, God knows what evil men will do, and this is the result of what evil what happens when men are evil and carry out their evil plan. No, God's not in a panic about any of it. But see, the more we allow the evil to continue, the more we bring judgment on ourselves, you know? Our pain and our suffering is preordained too. Yeah, it's frustrating, you know, to look at this country and see the things that are happening and you just, it's like, what can we do? I don't know, I don't know what we can do other than, like I said, know the truth, proclaim the truth, call other people's other people to believe and obey the truth of God, and uh, you know God will be glorified through that. But you know, and we've seen revivals throughout the history of the world. You know, people stood up and said, "This is what you know." I mean, you can imagine Luther going against the Catholic Church. You know, and they said, "Hey, one friar that goes against the church got to be wrong." Well, he wasn't wrong, and a revival broke out, and you know things happened, and people were getting saved, and broke out from the bondage of the Dark Ages and Catholicism, and the truth came to light. So, you know, don't underestimate what you can do with God working with you, okay? And that's the problem. I mean, don't give up. I mean, who knows what's going to happen? I think faith too has something. Just like the ingredients of dirt. I mean, if he, if, he, if he made certain things that's in dirt and you see the results of that thing that you put in dirt, right? Like, I mean... I guess one person can say, okay, explain to me all this, or just, oh, they can just say, okay, I believe through what you're telling me, and then with my own life. Sometimes you can't, faith has nothing to do with what you see, I understand that, or what you hope for, but, you know, it's like, I think man wants to know every single detail of what God, God has done, just so he can understand what God is doing, so to speak. And I don't think it's, it's totally 100% of I think he wants you to know what he wants you to know. I mean, he obviously he know more than we know. Always will. You know, <laughs> I think some people have just need to be closer to God, understand it to to understand. We need to work on understanding yeah. what he did reveal. You know okay, and that's right here. That's what we need to understand. That's what we got to get. All right, Kathleen asks again: What dominion did Jesus return to us when he died on the cross? 
after we lost it when Adam and Eve sinned. Well, what he did on the work of the cross is open the door to bring man back into fellowship with God. We were kicked out of the garden because of Christ. We're back in the garden. We're back in fellowship with God. All right, We enjoy that unhindered fellowship, living with God, or we can, you know, because of what Christ has done for us. He has provided redemption. He was the Lamb of God.